Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. As they leave this morning, I just want to say a word of welcome to you if you're a guest with us today. My name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us. Uh, when you came in, you should have found a card like this somewhere around where you're seated. On one side of that's a place for a little information about you so we could send you some information about us. On the other side of that's a place for a prayer requests. If there are things that we could pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. So you don't have to bear that burden alone. We'd love to enter into prayer with you about whatever needs you may have in your life. Uh, if you do fill out one of these, there is a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out. You can also find the same uh, forms online, the homepage of our website. Uh, and you can fill those out there and submit them electronically as well. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we'll read verses 9 to 14. That's our text this morning. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me and you can follow along there as we read. But if you do have a copy, whether it be physical paper copy or an electronic one, I encourage you, uh, go ahead and open it so you can, we'll refer back to it frequently throughout our time together this morning in God's Word. Colossians chapter 1, we'll pick up reading in verse 9 and we'll read down through verse 14 together this morning. Paul writes these words. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's Word. On Thursday evening, I was gathered with uh, our small our life group in the home of one of our members, and uh, at the end of our time of discussion and share and reflection, we came uh, time for prayer, and I asked for prayer for uh, my back. Uh, many of you know I've been dealing with a herniated disc in my back, uh, sending varying degrees of pain down my right leg. And so they gathered around me and they began to pray for me. Um, and I wish I could stand before you this morning and say the Lord had healed me, but it, for whatever reason in His providence, He's chosen not to at this time. Uh, but as we sat and shared uh, about different prayer requests, mine was one for phys a physical healing or physical relief from pain. And I don't know about you, but I, I find that oftentimes whenever we think of intercessory prayer, right? And that's a, that's a big churchy term. It basically means praying for other people, okay? Whenever we're praying for the needs and the lives of others, oftentimes those needs revolve around physical needs, right? Healing for certain ailments that we may experience or financial provision that the Lord would meet us in that particular need or that God would show up in some kind of way to relieve emotional distress 
us in our lives. Right? Oftentimes we find ourselves praying for physical or financial or emotional needs in our lives. And this morning, I'm not trying to, try, try, trying to compartmentalize this because I don't think the Bible does. I think our, our, our physical, financial, emotional, mental, all of that stuff is a part of who we are. But oftentimes in my own intercessory prayer and praying for others, I pray for all of those things, but sometimes I fail to pray for the spiritual realities at work in their lives. And in the text that we have before us this morning, that is what Paul is praying for, for the church at Colossae. These Colossian Christians, he's praying for spiritual realities in their lives, right? And so as we look at verses 9 to 14 this morning, I think Paul, what he does for us in those verses is establish a pattern for prayer uh, when, we're, when we're interceding, when we're praying for other people, when we're praying for their walk with Christ, for their relationship with God, for spirit, the spiritual dynamics that are taking place in their life, whether they see those things or not, Paul shows us how to pray for spiritual needs in the lives of others. And I think there's a few things that we can learn about this as Paul prays for these Colossian Christians. Remember, in a context where they have false teachings circulating through their city and even in the context of their church. And there's a few things we can learn about praying for others from this passage. But before we get to some of the practical things, I want to share with you what makes that type of prayer possible. Right? And here's what we find in the text, is that deliverance makes prayer possible. Deliverance makes prayer possible. It was N.T. Wright who said this. He said, it is because of what God has already done that Paul can pray with confidence for what God will do. Let me say that again. It's because of what God has already done that Paul can pray with confidence for what God will do. What is it that Paul says in this passage about what God has done? In verse 13 and 14, I want to read it to you again. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In verse 13, Paul says, the Father, that is He that he's referring to, the Father has delivered us, listen, past tense, delivered, right? He has delivered us, past tense, completed work from the domain of darkness. See, whenever you are living in the dark, when you're completely in the dark and darkness rules your life, that's what domain is, right? Domain is rule, exercising authority. When you're under the authority of darkness, under the rule of darkness, living completely in the dark, then you're grasping at ways of making sense of the world because you can't figure it out. You don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you are, and you don't know where you're going because you're in the dark, and being under the rule of darkness means that our spiritual situation is what Paul will describe elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, when he says that we were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it means to be in the, under the domain of darkness. But if you're a Christian this morning, I want you to know that God has delivered you from that. He's rescued you from the domain of darkness. 
But he's also transferred us. Transferred us. That word literally means to take someone from one place or position and bring them to another place or position. So he's taken us out of the rule of darkness, out from under the authority of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son, under the, from the rule of darkness to the rule of Jesus in our lives. We've been transferred, he says, if you're in Christ. And it is his beloved son that is in whom, in, verses, in verse 13, verses 13 and 14, that we have redemption. Now listen, redemption always included in that day a payment. And listen, I want to tell you something, that Jesus made a payment for the penalty of our sins that we had incurred. Right? Whenever he, his body is stretched wide and is raised high upon the cross, right? whenever his blood is shed... Whenever he breathes his last and he declares it is finished, full and final payment was made for the sins of all who would place their confidence in him, all who would trust in and treasure him. He made a payment to redeem us. That's how he rescued us and transferred us from one kingdom to another through redemption, which means that we, if you are in Christ, that you have forgiveness of your sins. Because when the penalty of sin is paid through the death of Christ, forgiveness is now available, it is full, and it is free for those who trust in him. See, the debt has been canceled, therefore the debtors are free. That's the reality of what's going on in those verses. And it is in, through this work of redemption in Christ that affords us access to God in prayer. Let me give you two reasons I say that. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told that when Jesus dies, that there was a curtain that was hanging in the temple. And that curtain hung in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And it was in that holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided. It's where the Ten Commandments were. It's where the mercy seat was. And that was the place that the priest would go in once a year in order to sprinkle the blood of a pure, undefiled, clean lamb upon the, or goat upon the mercy seat to turn aside God's wrath from his people. It was where the personal presence of God dwelt. And whenever Jesus breathes his last breath and declares it is finished, we are told in those three gospel accounts that that curtain that separated the personal presence of God from the people of God was torn in two from top to bottom because God has done the tearing and it indicates that now all of, the, all of God's people have access to his personal presence. He's no longer hid behind a curtain, but he's now active, involved. He's always active and involved, but now we have access to him. And so that's why in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 14 and following, when the author of Hebrews writes about Jesus as our great high priest, the one who stands and mediates before God, intercedes on our behalf, he says that we can go to God with confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We can go boldly before the throne of God with our petitions 
and with our intercessions, with the things we're asking for for ourselves and the things that we're asking for for others because the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom at the death of Christ. He redeemed us and brought forgiveness so that we would have access to God. Deliverance makes prayer possible. Let me see if I can make a street level for you this morning. Listen, without the mercy and grace of God that is ours only through the redeeming work of Christ. Listen, when we pick up the phone without Christ, there is no dial tone. Okay? There's no dial tone. Some of you are like, what is a dial tone? Right? Listen, I remember when I was a kid, when I was a kid all right, we had a kitchen phone. And that kitchen phone was the only phone in the house. Right? And that kitchen phone had a cord that could stretch two times around the globe. All right? It was all curled up. Some of you are like, I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. What is this kitchen phone you speak of? But you could walk anywhere in the home and that cord, right, into the living room, back to the bedroom, into the bathroom, into the, the study, wherever you needed to go, that cord would stretch. And whenever you picked up that phone, Whenever you picked up that phone, there was a dial tone on the other end. It was going, right? And that dial tone meant there was a connection. Without that dial tone, listen, you could dial the correct number, but you would never get through to the person on the other end because there was no connection. Without that dial tone, you could pick up the phone and you could talk until your heart was content, but there was no one on the other end to hear you. Without that dial tone, you could ask and ask and ask and ask and ask, but there was never anyone to respond to your request without that dial tone. Now, <laughs> let's go a little further back. See, way, way back in the day, Okay, this is before my time, right? Whenever you would pick up the phone, there was somebody already on the other end. It was called the operator, right? And that operator, whenever you picked up the phone, their job was to physically take a patch cable and they would plug it into one hole, right, coming from your line and they would plug it into the hole of the line that you were trying to connect to, the person that you wanted to speak with. And so when the operator picked up, you said, connect me to whoever it was you were trying to talk to, and the operator would patch you through. Now listen, I said that was before my day. But I want to tell you something this morning. When it comes to prayer, without the mercy and grace of Christ, when you pick up the phone, there is no dial tone. And whenever you pick up the phone, there is no operator on the other end. And listen, you and I, when it comes to prayer, we still need an operator. But it's not an earthly operator, it's a heavenly one. And listen, because of the work of Christ, if you are in Him this morning, whenever you pick up the phone, your heavenly operator, your heavenly mediator, your heavenly high priest is there saying, who can I connect you to? And when you say, I need access to the Father, He says, let me put you right through. And the Father is there ready to receive you and to hear your prayers. Now listen. Every church has its own personality, don't it? But if y'all were really a shouting church, some of y'all be to the post office by now. Right? Y'all are going to run out the building on that one. <laughs> because deliverance makes prayer possible. The work of Christ makes prayer possible. Opens access to God. He 
has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is our heavenly operator to connect us to the Father. He makes prayer possible. Not only this, but when it comes to the pattern of prayer in this passage, there are two things that I want to highlight this morning. If we're to become faithful intercessors in praying for the spiritual needs in the lives of other people, we must learn to pray persistently and purposefully. Those two things. First, praying persistently. In verse 9, Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Listen, what had Paul and Timothy heard? They had heard about the gospel bearing fruit in the lives of the Colossian Christians, right? Their hope that they had found in the gospel that was bearing, like we saw last week, the fruit of love and of faith in the lives of these Colossian Christians. But in verse 9, the verb forms, all right, get a little grammatical geekiness this morning. The verb forms in verse 9 for have not ceased, for pray, and for ask. They're all present tense verb forms. And what that means is this. It means that whenever Paul says he's praying for them, asking for them, that present tense indicates an ongoing, continual, repeated, frequent, and constant action. Anytime something's in the present tense, it means it's ongoing. In other words, Paul says we are in constant prayer for you, continually asking God for something on your behalf. We are repeatedly petitioning God in support of you. We are on your side and frequently pleading with God for you. We have not ceased to pray for you. And when Paul writes this, I'm reminded of the stories that Jesus uses in the gospel whenever he teaches about prayer. Because he uses two specific stories. One, about a widow and an unjust judge. He tells a story of a widow who comes before an unjust judge. And the judge is unrelenting, unwilling to give her what she's requesting. And so the widow comes day after day after day after day after day. Asking, petitioning, writing letters, starting peti- right, getting all her support, building her case before this unjust judge. Until finally the unjust judge is tired of hearing from her, tired of her asking, and he relents and responds to her request. And Jesus says, this is how you ought to pray and never give up. He tells another story. He tells a story of a man who receives an unexpected guest late in the night. And when that unexpected guest shows up, he doesn't have provisions in order to offer hospitality to his guest. And so what does he do? He becomes a needy neighbor. Okay, And he goes next door, and he knocks, and he knocks, and he knocks, and he knocks, and he knocks. And the, the neighbor in bed says, don't you know what time it is? But the man keeps knocking, and knocking, and knocking, and knocking until the man next door finally gets out of his bed, comes to the door, answers, says, what do you need? And then he provides him with provisions to go home and offer hospitality to his unexpected guest. And Jesus says, now God is not an unjust judge. He's a just one, so how much more so will he be willing to hear and respond to our request in his time? And God is not an unwilling neighbor, but a willing father who meets us in our need. 
he uses these two stories to teach us about persistence in prayer. These stories capture, I believe, the essence of Paul's grammatical constructions. But do they capture the nature of my prayer life? Do they capture the nature of your prayer life? Do we pray and not give up? Do we intercede for others like a widow pleading with a judge who's unwilling to give her what she's asking for? Do we intercede for others like a man who's knocking on the door of a neighbor in the middle of the night because he's in need and so he just keeps knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. Praying persistently. Now, look at what Paul and Timothy are praying persistently for these Colossian Christians. He says explicitly they are asking that God will fill them with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom, spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now when Paul uses the phrase, the knowledge of his will, here's what I believe he's referring to. He's referring to a deep and abiding understanding of God's whole saving purpose in Christ, in the world. What the Father is doing in the world through his Son and by his Spirit to save and to sanctify. That's what he's referring to with regards to the knowledge of God's will. So this reference to God's will is not a reference to some special direction in the lives of the Colossian Christians? Does God lead us and guide us? Give us discernment about decisions and choices? Yes, but that's not what he's referring to here. It is also not merely referring to God's moral will, right? Those things that God has issued and commands throughout the scriptures. But the knowledge of God's will is more than just that insight into how he wants us to behave, Or the choices that we ought to make as we face decisions in our lives. Rather, remember he's writing into a context where false teaching is circulating. And there are those who are saying in that context, Jesus is not enough for you. Christ is not enough for you. You need Jesus plus some kind of special knowledge that only we have to offer. You need Jesus plus some sort of mystical experience that only we can provide. You need Jesus plus some sort of deeper revelations that we are privy to. You need Jesus plus the observance of the holy days. Jesus plus the keeping of the law. Jesus plus all of these things. Christ is not enough. That's the false teaching that they're receiving. So when Paul prays that they would have this bedrock foundational understanding of God's will. He's not talking about special direction and he's not talking about moral behavior. He's talking about what God is purposed to do in and through Jesus that Jesus is enough for the Colossian Christians. That's what he's praying for. That's what he and Timothy are praying for. In other words, it's being filled with an understanding that Jesus is enough. And then he says in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, not only that you would grasp that, but what is, what is the difference between understanding and wisdom? Understanding is like this knowledge that I have intellectually, but wisdom is the practical application of that knowledge in life. So listen, this is where it gets good, because Paul says what we're praying for is that you'd be filled with this knowledge of God's will, that Jesus is enough, that what God is doing in and through him, you don't need to add to him, because if you add to him, you take away from him. 
And so he says, listen, you need to be filled with this knowledge of God's will. You need to understand it. And then you need to live like Jesus is enough. That's what wisdom looks like. So you understand that he's enough. And then you live like he's enough in all the realities of your life. And so whenever, <laughs> whenever you blow out, I'm speaking from personal experience, when you blow out your calf and you have a herniation between your L5 and S1 disc in your back that's causing continual radiating pain down your leg, listen, I have to look in the mirror every morning and ask the question, is Jesus enough in this circumstance? Whenever you have a child who goes off the rails and your heart is breaking, and you look in the mirror, and you say, is Jesus enough? Whenever there's challenges in your marriage, the question is, is Jesus enough? When your heart is broken, I want to tell you this morning, He is enough. He's enough. That's the knowledge of God's will that Paul's praying that the, the Colossian Christians would be filled with. That he's enough and they would live like it. They would live like it. And he says, I'm praying this persistently for you. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times in which there's so much information coming in that I have a hard time keeping track of what's going out. Right? And so listen, there's, with, with the advent of modern technology, there's so many ways that you can make persistent prayer a part of your life. Some of you are like, I'm still analog. That's great. Okay? You still got a prayer journal and you write things down. Okay? I envy you. <laughs> right? You still use paper and pencils and pens or marker boards right, in a home office. Whatever, whatever analog system you have to keep track of how you can pray for others. That they would know and live that, Je as Je that Jesus is enough. Do that. But listen, there's also modern technology. You can use a reminder app on your phone. You can set notifications on your phone. I don't know about you, but there are certain key times throughout the day whenever I may have like rhythmic downtime in my schedule. Okay? Whether it be at a lunch period or I'm driving to this meeting or I'm going into uh, th this, this place and I've got this five minutes here or I've got 12 minutes here or I've got 15 minutes here. And it seems like, you know, on my way to this appointment every single week or sometimes every single day, I've got this bandwidth. So why not set a reminder in your phone to notify you at that time? Pray. Pray for these people. Right? You set it up in advance while you're thinking about it, and then all of a sudden it just automatically reminds you right, to pray persistently for the needs in the lives of others. When you think of your prayers of intercession for others, would you classify them as, as persistent, sporadic, or absent? And what step can you take this week to move toward persistent prayer? But Paul doesn't stop there. He also says that if we're going to intercede for others, not only do we pray persistently, that they would know and live like Jesus is enough for them, but you would also pray purposefully. See, in verse 10, Paul writes these words. He says, I'm praying these things for you so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. This short phrase, 
in it, Paul puts forward the purpose of his prayer. The why. Why am I asking for these things for you? Why do I want God to fill you with this knowledge that Jesus is enough and that you would live like it? And Paul says, here's the purpose behind it. So that you would live a life that is worthy, worthy of God. Now, he's not saying that you would live a life that would somehow merit you acceptance with God because that's already been taken care of through the finished work of Christ and his redeeming work to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you. But rather, in response to that, that you would live a life worthy of Christ. So then in verses 10 through 12, Paul goes on to tell us what a life that's fully pleasing to God looks like. And I believe he highlights four things. Let me give them to you quick this morning. The first is this. And we're not going to go and order the text. I just want to drop them for you this morning. The first one is this. Is that it's a grateful life. A life that is fully pleasing to God is a grateful life. In verse 12, he writes these words. It would be a life in which there is giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Listen, our gratitude is rooted in the fact that the Father has qualified us through the redeeming work of Christ to share in the inheritance with all of God's people, not in the domain of darkness, but in the kingdom of His beloved Son, which is the rule of light and life in our lives. Listen, when it comes, let me see if I can break it down for you like this. When it comes to our relationship right, with a given set of standards or criteria, Right for participation in something, uh, then we can either we there's one of three options. We can either be unqualified, right? We can be unqualified by lacking them. We can be disqualified by breaking them, or we can be qualified by keeping them. Okay, one of those three options. Let me see if I can make a street level. All right, for those who want to run the Boston Marathon, all right. Ever since the Cowtown Marathon, the tearing of my calf, the herniation of my disc, my goal now is to save up to buy a rascal scooter, right? That I can then qualify for the Boston Marathon with, right? But for those who want to run the Boston Marathon, there's a qualification process you've got to go through. You can't just walk up to the registration table on race day and pay your money and say, hey, give me a, give me a bib, I'm in, right? That's not how it works, But if you want to run the Boston Marathon, you have to qualify for the marathon by showing a recent race time from a certified marathon course in which you finish with a time below the qualifying time for your age bracket and your gender. In other words, there are many people who may want to run the Boston Marathon, but they would not be allowed to run the Boston Marathon because they are unqualified. See, people who are unqualified might assume that they just need a little more time, right? They need a little more training. They need a little better form. They need a little faster cadence. They maybe need a little better equipment. Because to be unqualified assumes that one day you could work your way up to being qualified. That's one way. Alternatively, to be disqualified is the result of a blatant and willful violation of those established criteria or standards and that would allow your participation. So in 1980, there was a lady by the name of Rosie Reese. And she was disqualified from the Boston Marathon after winning the Boston Marathon in the female division with a time of 2 hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds. 
The third fastest time by a woman at that point in history of the marathon. Now, the reason she was disqualified, you might be asking why. The reason she was disqualified is because she hid in the crowd a half a mile from the finish line and then popped out and finished the race. And whenever the officials discovered that she had only run like 800 meters of a 26.2 mile race, of course she was disqualified and banned from ever participating in the Boston Marathon again. Right? So they reversed their decision. She was disqualified because of something that she had done. Not unqualified, assuming she could work her way up to meet the standards, but disqualified because of something that she had done. Whenever, you th- whenever we think about our relationship to God's standards, the consistent testimony of the Bible is not that we are unqualified and if we just try a little harder, if we just, work, if we just do a little better, then one day we will ascend to the top and God will accept us because we can qualify ourselves. Now the consistent testimony of Scripture is that we are disqualified because we willfully violated God's commands. But thanks be to God. Because he has qualified us. And how has he done that, Paul says? If you go forward with what we just saw earlier in verses 13 and 14, he's qualified us through the redeeming work of Jesus. In other words, Jesus has run the marathon for us. He has submitted the qualifying time. And so we've been accepted into this race called Christianity in a relationship with God, not because we ran the race and did so well, but because he ran the race in our place. He submitted our time on our behalf so we'd be welcomed into covenant relationship with God. God the Father qualified us through the redeeming work of His Son. See, knowing Jesus is enough that He has qualified you produces a life of gratitude, unparalleled thanksgiving. So it's a grateful life. Second, it's a fruitful life. See, when you know and live like Jesus is enough, your life looks like a well-watered garden. I think of the image that the psalmist uses in Psalm 1, like a tree planted by streams of water that does not wither in dry seasons but continues to bear fruit. When you know that Jesus is enough in whatever circumstance you're in, Jesus is enough regardless of the situations that you're facing. Jesus is enough regardless of the decisions that you have before you. Then your life bears fruit through all these types of good works. Paul says bearing fruit in every good work. When you're satisfied in Christ and not searching for more, like Jesus plus something else. When you're satisfied, when He is enough for you, then you spend your life serving Him, not searching for more outside of Him. So you're bearing fruit in every good work. All kinds of ways in which you're obeying the Lord and God is bearing fruit in and through your life. Third, It's not only a grateful life and a fruitful life, but it's a first-hand life. He says, increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. 
Now listen, let me see if I can make it plain for you this morning like this. There's a difference between intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge, isn't there? I think all of us in this room will recognize those are two different categories, right? You can learn theory in the classroom, okay? But oftentimes, whenever you have studied for your particular vocation, you've learned the theory in the classroom, but when it comes time to the practical application of those theories, then you're experiencing the realities that you've only heard about in the classroom. Case in point, those who are in the profession of education, Okay, so you learn all the educational theory, the developmental theories in your education classes. But whenever you step into the classroom to begin your first day of student teaching, all of a sudden, then you begin to experience that reality. And then when you move forward from student teaching and you become the primary teacher in the classroom, it's like, oh my gosh, they're entrusting me with these kids. I have no idea what I'm doing. That's how I felt as a parent, right? Whenever we brought our son home. From the hospital, our firstborn, we're like, I can't believe they're letting us go with this other human being in our car. Because I've read all the books. I've gone to the courses. I've listened to the podcast. But now I'm experiencing these realities. There's a difference between first-hand knowledge and second-hand knowledge. There's a difference between knowing the force of gravity and experiencing the force of gravity when you try to jump and touch the rim of the basketball goal. <laughs> and all of a sudden, gravity just sucks you right back down. And you've got like a three-centimeter vertical. Right? First-hand knowledge is something that you experience yourself. Second-hand knowledge is something you don't know about directly. You have not experienced it yourself. You may have read about it. You may have heard about it from someone else. But you haven't encountered it firsthand. And Paul says that a way of living a life that's fully pleasing to God, by, when you know that Jesus is enough, and you press further into Him in obedience to Him, then you increase in the knowledge of God. And he's not talking about increasing in intellectual knowledge of God as you obey Him, but increasing in experiential knowledge of God as you obey Him. Listen, listen, increasing in the knowledge of God is not less than understanding the truths of who God is, but it is more than that. It is experiencing those truths as they work themselves out in our daily realities. It's not only knowing how to share your faith, but it's sharing your faith and seeing how God works through that. It's not only knowing how to pray, but it's actually praying and interceding for others, petitioning God on their behalf. It's not only knowing the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples, but it's going across town to help plant other churches or it's partnering with other churches across town to multiply disciples in ways that you work better together than you would by yourselves. Right? It's go, or it's moving across the globe right? to see light shine into very dark places. And as you take those steps of obedience, God meets you there and you experience Him in ways that you would not have experienced had you said no rather than saying yes. It's increasing in that kind of knowledge of God of having a story to tell, a testimony to give. But fourth and finally, it's a resilient life. See, a resilient life, I would say, is a 
buoyant life. A buoyant life. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Uh, back in 2006, I acquired from my family a very old and beaten up bass boat. Okay, some of you have seen this thing. Some of it's held together by duct tape and super glue in some places. Okay, um, but it floats and it runs most of the time. Um, and so uh, I decided uh, back, uh, I guess maybe about two years after getting that boat, that I was going to change the trolling motor up on the front because it had been given to me by someone else in my family as well. And it had a, instead of having a hand control, I had a foot control. And that foot control sits on the front of the deck and you kind of raise your foot up and you push the pedal up and down and turn the, the, the trolling motor which way you want to steer it. And there's a little button that you push with your foot to make it go uh, and move. Well, standing like this, like the karate kid, right, all day long, right, is not a very comfortable position. So I decided I was going to install what they, they make now, a recessed tray to put in the front deck of the boat to where the pedal of the trolling motor is sitting almost flush with the deck of the boat. So you can stand in a normal position and control the trolling motor. Well, that required cutting out a rectangular shaped piece of the front deck. And so I drilled some holes, took a jigsaw, began to cut. And as I cut away that portion of the front deck and lifted the plywood underneath the carpet, I discovered, right, that that boat was filled with foam that had been injected into those empty cavities. And that boat was in, all that foam was injected there whenever they constructed the boat. And so every empty cavity on the boat is filled with this foam. And what that foam does is it makes that boat buoyant. It makes that boat float in even the most extreme circumstances. Some of you have been with me in some of those extreme circumstances where as you're running across the lake, you're taking waves over the bow that are crashing. And you think, man, we're not going to make it. But that foam keeps you afloat. Been bounced out of the water where the engine goes, because it's no longer down below the surface, Right? But that boat stays above the water. It continues to float and to a large degree it's because of all that buoyant foam that's been injected into that hull. And all I'm trying to say to you this morning, church, is this, is that a life, whenever you know that Jesus is enough for you, as the waves and the winds begin to build around you, there is a buoyancy to your life whenever injected into the core of your life, into the whole of your life, is this truth about the reality of the sufficiency of Jesus. Even in this, you're able to float above all the wind and the waves because God meets you there. And when you know that Jesus is enough, He provides strength. He strengthens you. That's what Paul says. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for joyful, patient endurance. See, everything that God asks of us, he provides by his grace. What he demands, he delivers. What he requires, he gives. And this filling with an understanding of what God is doing in and through Christ, this long view of redemption, that God is at work, He has not abandoned me. It strengthens us, it fills us with power in the most tumultuous of circumstances. And with power to deal with the most tumultuous kinds of people. You look at those two words, patient and endurance, in the text, and you might say, well, they're just synonyms. But listen, let me tell you, 
I believe there might be a slight distinction between the two. What is required in the context of dealing with tumultuous people? It's patience. And what is required in dealing with the most tumultuous of circumstances or situations in your life? It's endurance. And you need both of those things. And God provides both of them, strengthening you with his power as you understand that Jesus is sufficient, that he's enough. So let me ask you a question. Are you praying persistently? Are you praying purposefully to see this end in someone else's life, that they would be grateful, that they would be fruitful, that they would be resilient, and that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God, experiencing God through their obedience. One last thing here. Just, uh, and it's not even on the screen. I just want to call us as a church to pray. Pray. Pray by yourself. Pray with others. I find it interesting. Paul says in verse 9, he says, from the day that we heard. Who's he talking about? He and Timothy. From the day that we heard. It's at least two other people, right? Or at least Paul and one other person. At least two people that are praying. And I suspect there's probably more as Paul has shared this with other of his ministry partners. From the day that we heard. In other words, we corporately together are praying for you there in Colossae. Church, there is a power to collective corporate prayer when we gather together to pray for God to show up. And we're going to do that together. We do it every Sunday during our corporate prayer time in our service But listen, on May 21st, in this room at 5 p.m., we're going to gather as a church body to sing and do nothing but sing and pray. So what if you carved out time in your calendar and you said, I'm not going to let leisure or hobbies or or, or other other, other, uh, pressing, what I believe to be pressing needs in that time, squeeze that out, but I'm going to show up here. We're going to have child care for the littles so they can go and won't be a distraction. We're going to have our grade schoolers in here with us to pray with us so they can see what it looks like when the church gathers together to pray. And we're going to pray. So make that a priority so that we might be able to say, we have not ceased. We pray persistently. We're pressing into the Lord together. Deliverance makes prayer possible. Paul says the pattern for it is persistence and purpose. May that mark us as a church body. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning acknowledging that because of Jesus Christ, there is a dial tone when we pick up the phone. That because of Jesus Christ, there is an operator who stands willing and ready to patch us through to you. So may we avail ourselves of that opportunity. May we not neglect it. May we pray persistently and purposefully. And may we see fruit born from that because you show up and work. That you do things that only you can do. That you would do through prayer what no amount of planning can do. 
that you would do through prayer what no degree of strategy could do. That you would do through prayer more than we could ask or imagine. And that we would stand back in gratitude with hands raised saying thank you. Help us to be faithful intercessors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.